the tiny fishing village of Olala, Washington, was home to only a few dozen families when Dr. Linda Hazard came to town. It was the dawn of the 20th century, the big city doctor building her own private hospital and a circle of little cottages where her patients could live while they were getting treatments. 50 miles outside Seattle, along the waters of Puget Sound, it was an idyllic spot for her Institute of Natural Therapeutics. Even before they'd finished building, Dr. Hazard's new hospital drew people from all over the world. People wealthy enough to afford the very best medicine that money could buy. And Dr. Hazard wasn't shy about making sure she got every penny she deserved, and then some. Forcing her patients to pay up front, and even having them sign over power of attorney so she could control their fortunes in case they didn't survive her treatments. For decades, the doctor performed what she claimed were cutting-edge treatments for deadly diseases like cancer on members of some of the most prominent families in the Seattle area. And while many of her patients died under her care, Dr. Hazard's autopsies would show it was their illnesses that killed them, not her revolutionary medicine. Even when neighbors started talking about the walking corpses they would see wandering around the property at night, and there were headlines in the local paper about the woman MD who kills her patients, the steady stream of high society clients continued showing up at her door. They were desperate, sometimes dying, and always willing to do just about anything to buy back their health. You know, was she a serial killer? Was she crazy? Was she just an absolute fanatic advocate for this medical treatment? I think it's a combination of everything. Whatever her motives, one thing was clear. Dr. Hazard was hell-bent on proving her treatments worked. Even a conviction for murder wouldn't stand in her way. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is The Scene of the Crime. So, Kim, I feel like I'm a glutton for punishment. So Glutton? <laughs> glutton. Last week, we went over the cult mom investigation. And then this week, of course, we're dealing with another form of cult of personality, Dr. And I loosely say Dr. Linda Hazard. You know, it's kind of dredged up a lot for me and my mom because we were part of what I would consider a cult light, like L-I-T-E, thank God. And it's interesting because I was thinking about when you get to a certain place in your life, you sort of want to start taking, you know, deeper looks mm -hmm. from a sort of processed pain perspective. You know, it's not so raw. It's not so, you know, you can look at that. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, drew me to true crime, the genre, and I think you, too, like we like to look at it from, you know, the sociological aspects, the anthropo anthropology, why people do what they do. And I think the cult of personality, you know, that living color song, the cult of personality perfectly kind of represents, you know, that song was about a politician, about politicians letting down the masses. You know, they, they have all these promises. They say they're going to do all these things. And then they're ultimately, you know, let down. So. I think that um, it's it's important to look at these types of personalities to, to know that they come in all flavors. I mean, even as a reporter, I don't know if you'll agree with this, but on a micro level, you know, you have this ability to really see people 
you know, as I would like to say, you know, avatar style, where you can look at someone and you can talk to them. And detectives do this, too, where it's part of the job to kind of, what does this person need? What what do you need to get them? How do they need to feel for them to tell you what you need from them right, for the yes. story? Right. How do you ingratiate yourself to this person in a relatively short period of time? Yeah, exactly. And in this case, you know, in my case, I always like to think it's like, I, that's why I don't like to cross that line of, of like, there's that morality where it's like, sometimes people tell you too much. And you're like, oh, you know, be careful. You know, you you worry about. I don't you, think I've ever gotten to that point, but <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like there's a power there, and it can so you can either use it for good or for evil. And in this case, as we will learn, you know, she clearly was using her cult of personality for evil. Yeah, and she had that charismatic personality, according to all accounts. So for this case, we talked to Steve Dunkelberger. He's a local historian and author, and he hosts. Steve's Drunk History, which I think we need to check out at some point when everything reopens. It's basically like a cross between a history tour and a pub crawl. Oh, yeah. We're we're all uh, over that. Yeah, of course, Steve had to have a, a drink in hand during our conversation on this case. So in 1867, Dr. Linda Hazard was born Linda Burfield in Carver, Minnesota, one of eight children. Her father was a Civil War veteran and had a gazillion of kids. By all accounts, he was a very affectionate father, but he said modern medicine is the wave of the future and to keep people healthy, use modern technology. You know, this is 1870s at that point. And so he would take his kids to the doctor just for regular checkups. And along the way, the doctor, for whatever reason, the doctor prescribed blue mass. It's basically a mix of licorice and herbs and mercury. And it was like, well, you look at that. It's quirky from today's standards. But, you know, Abraham Lincoln kept a tin of it, you know, and used it his entire life. So we now know that mercury exposure can cause brain, heart, lung, immune system issues. And in children, it can stunt their development, particularly the development of their brain and their nervous system. But during this time in the late 19th, early 20th century, they didn't know about all the long-term consequences of using this chemical. You're supposed to feel better. Of course, you know, it's euphoric because your body is slowly dying. But, you know, it it was a common treatment for like syphilis. And the old saying was, you know, a moment with Venus gives you a lifetime of mercury. Because yes, it cured syphilis, but it also made you insane and made you lose your teeth. Yeah. And what's interesting here, too, is like, I think we can look at this in photography. Like back in the day, it, it had like radiation. Mm-hmm. So people would be or the like the, the early x-rays and, and, you know, people are putting their feet in it or there. It, it came like, hey, look at this picture. You can see that your bones, but they don't know that this is actually radiation that's going to kill you. So now, you know, with in hindsight, we know how crazy that is. But I, I actually became kind of curious about like, what what is our history in the United States with when did you know doctors actually become doctors? After we did the Mad Doctor of South Hill, that case took place in the early 1920s. And it was surprising to me how loosey-goosey the medical field in our country was back then. And it's the same kind of time period where this story is taking place, early 1900s. So really, it was a free-for-all up until 1904 when the American Medical Association was created. 
And so their objective back then was to restructure the American medical evaluation, which was all over the map. And so she basically kind of slid, yes. slid right under there. She did, because they basically grandfathered in anybody who'd been practicing medicine before those rules came into effect. They said, well, you know, we're not going to stop you from having your livelihood that you've had for the last however many years. So she was one of those who was allowed to continue practicing and calling herself a doctor, even though she never went to medical school. So when Linda was 18, she married Edwin Perry, and they had two children, Roland and Nina. But a few years later, Edwin left her, and he just disappeared. There's some speculation that Linda may have done away with her husband, but he later turned up across the country, eventually died of old age. So for whatever reason, they separated, but he apparently left of his own free will. When their divorce was finalized in 1902, Linda, or Dr. Perry, as she was now known, had started practicing medicine at a little office in Minneapolis. She advertised treatments for all kinds of everyday ailments like arthritis and headaches, but all of the treatments came down to one thing. She would tell her patients that they needed to stop eating. Dr. Perry said a combination of fasting, only drinking small amounts of liquids, and doing regular enemas would clear their system of whatever was ailing them. Even though she never went to medical school, people were lining up to see this woman doctor who was getting more popular by the day. Now, granted, doctors at that time really didn't need a medical license. Um, you know, always point out that Dr. Linda Hazard did not have a medical degree. Well, not a lot of doctors did. You know, I think California was the first in 1871 to require a medical license, but that was just, I mean, it was an age of quackery. And Dr. Perry was the queen of the quackers. She was doing well for herself, charging her wealthy clients a pretty penny for a treatment that was basically free. I mean, the treatment was don't do anything. So it cost her nothing, but she was making a whole lot of money off these wealthy clients. About that same time, Linda met Samuel Hargrove. And he was already married, but Linda and Samuel had a really intense relationship right from the start. When Samuel's wife found out about it, she was so angry, she called the cops and Samuel was arrested for bigamy. In this defense, Samuel said, well, actually, Viv, honey, sweetie, we're not legally married because my name isn't Hardgrove and I'm not legally married to you, so you can't bring charges against me. And so both women paid for his legal bills. He did get sentenced to two years, and they both visited them in prison. Samuel had nothing, so therefore he played him off each other. Whoever's going to pay my bills, you know, wins the prize. And Linda won this prize. Yay. Congratulations, Linda. So around 1904, Samuel and Linda were married. And then in 1905, Samuel was released from prison, and the newlyweds decided it was time to start their life together. And they wanted to do that in the Pacific Northwest in Washington state. But it wasn't just a fresh start they were looking for. Linda was also looking to get out of Minneapolis because she needed to avoid accusations of malpractice that were starting to come her way. A woman named Gertrude Young had sought treatment for partial paralysis that she'd suffered following a stroke. She'd looked to other doctors for help before, but none of them seemed to be able to do anything for her. It was something that Linda could understand, that distrust of the male-dominated medical field and a yearning for something different, something new and modern, a breakthrough maybe, that would help her get her life back. The doctor's treatment was pretty straightforward. 40 days, <laughs> pretty no solid food. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Only water and broth for 40 days. But Gertrude had to be super strict with that regimen. So Linda hired a nurse to stay with her 24-7 and ensure 
She was sticking to the plan. Well, less than a month later, Gertrude was a shadow of her old self. She was shaky, sweaty, incoherent, falling over. But she didn't want to give up the treatment. When a doctor she had seen previously told Gertrude that she needed to eat something or she was going to starve to death, she refused to listen. And on November 18, 1902, 39 days into this 40-day fast, she died. Steve says Linda's explanation for Gertrude's death was pretty simple. Yes, one of my first patients, who was a 41-year-old, died on the 39th day of a 40-day fast, and she weighed 105 pounds. But she was also had a stroke, so she was dead anyway. The county coroner did open an inquest into Gertrude's death, and he discovered that not only had she died, but a bunch of her jewelry was missing. Linda told the authorities that Gertrude had become so close to her nurse that she gifted her that jewelry, but they never could track down the nurse to find out what had become of it all. The jewelry had just vanished, and soon after, so did the good doctor. So now married and going by the name Dr. Hazard, Linda and her new husband, fresh out of prison, started their new life together in Washington. So, Kim, what happened to that investigation? Was she ever charged for anything? She was never charged with a crime. They they couldn't prove that she'd taken the jewelry because they could never find it. And a panel of three physicians looked at um, Gertrude's death and they said, well, yeah, she died of star- starvation, but she could have left at any time. She could have eaten food at any time. But she wanted to continue the treatment. So it was her choice. And so there was no murder charges that were ever filed. So I'm wondering what the nexus of anorexia, where you're so entrenched in the belief that food is the enemy, that it becomes not only like a psychological disorder, but it actually affects the brain. Apparently, when you starve yourself, parts of your brain undergo structural changes and abnormal activity during anorexic states, reduced heart rate, which could deprive the brain of oxygen, an adverse effect on the emotional centers of the brain, which may lead to depression, irritability, and isolation. You literally have less gray matter as a result of starvation. And so as we see in this case, like... They don't want to leave the treatment, but their mental, I mean, when you haven't eaten for 40, 49 days. You don't have the ability to make that decision. You don't have. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's really important to, you know, talk about that. But also, you know, you can we can throw around the word Stockholm syndrome. And I don't know if you know the have you uh, have you heard a lot about Stockholm syndrome? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, But have you heard that it actually where the syndrome comes from? Stockholm? <laughs> yes, but, <laughs> yes, but I never actually put the two together, Stockholm Syndrome, and that that it actually took place in Stockholm. Uh-huh. Da, 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 da. <laughs> um, but it was because of a, a botched bank robbery. And I guess the, the people that were taken hostage by these bank robbers ended up identifying with their captives. And so they were more on their side than they were the law enforcement that was trying to, you know, help save them and kind of botch that. Uh, do you know that whole story? Yeah. So I feel like the, Dr. Hazard and her patients really fall in, you know, along those same lines where, you know, when she was young and she tried to go to a doctor for treatment, she was given mercury, which made her more ill. And so she didn't trust the medical establishment. Mm-hmm. And her patients that were coming to her didn't trust the medical establishment. So they had this relationship, this closeness and connection that I think helped encourage her patients to stick with her even when they started having doubts. Okay, that's a really good point. So it's basically framed in a way of like, we don't trust 
the patriarchy because yes. it's let us down. Exactly. We don't try, and that's where they bonded together. Okay, that makes sense. So Dr. Hazard and her husband moved to Seattle, and they didn't waste any time setting up a new medical practice in the growing city. Linda would see the patients. Samuel would handle the paperwork. In 1908, she wrote a book called Fasting for the Cure of Disease. It was updated three times, and it's actually still in print today. I looked it up, and you can get the Kindle version. That's crazy. But I think that one thing about that's interesting about her, Dr. Hazard, is that they always say that really good liars base their lives in somewhere in the truth, right? Oh, yeah. And so I think that there's a reason why fasting has sort of help, held up in naturopathic medicine for all these years, because... You know, she just went to the the total dark side with it. But the idea of like, OK, don't drink alcohol, don't eat a bunch of fatty foods, you know, limiting exercise, your intake, limit the intake. I mean, those are all great tips and valid. And uh, yeah, exactly. So Dr. Hazard started seeing the same success in Seattle that she had in Minneapolis and then some. Her book was attracting patients from all over the world. Dr. Hazard's patients would stay at a hotel in Seattle where they could be monitored by the good doctor and her team of nurses. Steve says the treatments now went beyond just fasting. Fairly straightforward. You uh, had a tomato and water broth every day. You had orange juice, like a, a glass of orange juice. No, no meat whatsoever. Then she would hit them, either, either slap them, hit them, punch them in the meat of the thighs and in the chest and the forehead. The idea is that the, the pain will spark your central nervous system to basically restart. And then your central nervous system will take care of whatever ailment you're working on. As patients get weaker and weaker, they couldn't, you know, stand up to do things. So she would set up basically like makeshift hammocks in the bathtub so they could, patients would lay down in the bathtub. She would give them enemas with basically, uh, you know, a garden hose in the pooper and uh, flush them out. And you just got to cleanse the body of, of all things that are uh, ailing you. But again, neighbors were starting to become suspicious. And Linda was just running out of room. She had more patients than the apartment building could handle. So she and Samuel bought a pretty piece of property in the little town of Olala out on the Olympic Peninsula. That's where she began to build her sanatorium, complete with a series of cottages where her wealthy clients could stay and be monitored. As she was just starting to build what she decided to call Wilderness Heights, one particularly interesting set of patients came over together from England, a couple of young heiresses, Dorothea and Claire Williamson. They didn't have any serious medical issues, but they suffered from things like arthritis and swollen glands. And of course, they had plenty of money that they could spend on these they illnesses. They suffered from too much money yeah, exactly. and time on their hands. Dorothea and Claire, who were British citizens, came to Seattle, got their treatment there, and started getting noticed by the neighbors in the apartment saying, hey, they have a nurse walking them around the hallways and they're skeletons. Um, we should probably do something about that. And then uh, Linda put them on ambulances and drove them to the ferry and took the ferry to Olala. And uh, on the way, Dorothea uh, signed off all of her uh, belongings to the hospital and bequeathing. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Claire. Signed up most of her belongings, including fifteen thousand dollars a year after her death, which is about you know four hundred fifty thousand dollars in today's dollars. And they arrived in Olala. The hospital wasn't finished yet. It had no electricity. They're still building and all that stuff. So they moved. Claire went upstairs in an attic, and Dorothea was on a. Uh, a breezeway porch out in the elements, the idea that the open air will help 
heal her wounds and, and all that stuff. So she basically uh, got really, really cold while, you know, being starved and, and beaten and kept them separated so they couldn't talk and convince each other that they wanted to leave. The sisters weighed about 70 pounds apiece at this point, but they never reached out to their family back in England. Apparently, their family thought that they were a little crazy for even wanting to do this treatment in the first place and trusting this woman doctor who, who they didn't know and who had no real training. The only time that either of the girls reached out for help was sending their childhood nurse, Margaret Conway, a letter. It was apparently really short and really incoherent, and it freaked her out. So she hopped on a ship and started heading to the Pacific Northwest to find out what the heck was going on. And this is back in the day when, I mean, the ship is going to take about a month. Right, to, exactly. It, it gives this sense of urgency in a time when when you think about it, it just this it's anxiety-provoking because you know that they're just wasting away. Like the, And yeah. every day. Every day could be matters. their last. Yeah. Yeah, every hour. And sure enough, by the time the nanny arrived in Washington, Claire was already dead. But Dr. Hazard said it wasn't the treatment that killed her. It was medicine that Claire had been given by one of those charlatan men doctors back when she was a kid. Oh, no. Dr. Hazard claimed that that medicine had shrunken Claire's organs and left her in such poor health that her body just quit working and she was too far gone for the fasting treatment to work. So, you know, maybe it would have if we'd have gotten to her earlier. I just don't understand why some of these doctors are not calling her out. I just don't get that. Like, lady, you don't even have your medical degree. And it's like she's getting to just wave her magic wand and say, this is what I think it is. And it's like... She has no proof to back that up, and they're buying it. Well, at the time, there wasn't really a good established medical framework for doing research, for diagnosing, for deciding what were effective treatments. I mean, it was really just, let's try stuff and see if I feel better afterward. And for certain things like fasting and starving, you actually get a little bit of a euphoria for a period of time. And so you might think, oh, I feel better. Like, this is working. Yeah, I'm just surprised that when people die, usually there's some sort of an investigation even back in the day. And I'm just surprised that they're buying this. You know, well, like they did for is, a while. Is buying it. And I'm wondering, again, back to that cult of personality, is she able to not only sway, you know, her victims, but also the people that she's talking to, you know, the police and just like, hey, you know, with an authority, with an, you know, with an air of an authority. But it's it's remarkable because she's a woman during these times. And there are probably like zero woman doctors at this time. So but you have to think that not only is the medical field not very progressed at this point, but neither is the criminal justice system. Yeah. And so, you know, they're thinking that, well, they could have left at any point. They could have eaten something at any point. Keeps coming up yeah. that it was like the, the patients chose this. They didn't recognize the psychological ramifications of holding someone in your apartment building or in your hospital of, you know, the fact that their brains probably weren't functioning properly because they were starving. There was a lot of things that I think today, if they were in court, would be taken into consideration yeah. that were not considered back then. But I also wonder, too, if it's not the, the thing where they discounted a woman's opinion and her like oh, what sure. she's saying so much that they're like, there's no way that this woman could do this. There's no way that she could be a serial killer. There's no way that she's, you know, stealing their their goods and their that, you know, there's no way that she's capable of being that manipulative and that crafty. I, I just wonder how much of that is playing in this story. I'm sure at least a little bit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Margaret, the nanny, was suspicious, even more so when she finally got to see Dorothea 
who had shrunken to an unbelievable 50 That's crazy. pounds. That is so crazy. By this time, Dorothea was too incoherent to make any decisions for herself. And because of that power of attorney that Dr. Hazard had had the sisters sign on their way to the sanatorium, the nanny and the sisters' family, they couldn't get her out of there. Eventually, Dorothea was able to regain her freedom, but only after the family paid Dr. Hazard $1,000 in, quote, unpaid medical bills. And $1,000 is probably equal to like $20,000 back in the day. Yeah. yeah. So during this whole back and forth trying to get Dorothea out of there, there was an investigation into Claire's death. And they discovered that several of Dr. Hazard's wealthy patients had made untimely exits, including a state legislator and the mother of a Seattle restaurant mogul. Oh, my gosh. Daisy Maud Hagland. She was undergoing the uh, the 50-day starvation regimen. And oddly enough, she didn't make it, leaving behind three-year-old Ivar, who later on to become Ivar's clam chowder. So here we got a, a man who's served meals to millions of people and his own mom died of starvation. But even he said that he thought that Linda Hazard's treatment worked, but his mom just died because it was time for her to go. The irony of it is that, you know, Ivers is a huge presence in Washington. And it's ironic that, um, you know, the mom died of starvation and then the son goes on to build this, you know, seafood chowder empire um, in the Pacific Northwest. Well, he's trying to feed all the people like his mom was not able <laughs> yeah. to be fed. And, yeah. And it was around this time that the hospital garnered a new nickname, Starvation Heights, because neighbors in Olala reported seeing rail thin patients that would be just walking around the property and at times walking away, going to the neighbors' houses looking for food. What's it- interesting too is that people in the neighborhood were afraid of Dr. Hazard because of the reputation that she had gained. And and so I think a lot of that fear was like, hey, what what stays in Vegas stays in Vegas. Like we don't want to we don't want to have yeah, this woman come after us. Keep it on your property, and and we'll you know you stay away from us, we'll stay away from you. But yeah, she was um, very persuasive. There were some people that think she even did some kind of hypnosis mm-hmm. on not only her patients but other people that she would meet because she was just that persuasive with her personality. Yeah. In 1911, Linda Hazard was arrested and charged with the murder of Claire Williamson. During her trial, several doctors testified that there were benefits to the fasting treatments. Linda argued that she was being persecuted because she was a woman trying to get ahead in a male-dominated field. And besides, she said the patients, they were not being held hostage. Linda said that they could have left any time they wanted, but they just decided to put all their faith in me and I'm just being persecuted by the male-dominated medical establishment and the man doesn't want to want you to get the truth of how this is working. And, you know, it actually had some traction in, in the newspapers. A lot of feminist newspapers were saying, yeah, she's right. Again, back to they can go eat anytime they want. They can leave anytime they want. They choose not to. Well, the jury didn't buy it. Dr. Hazard was sentenced to prison time, but she only served two years. She actually was let out early, given a pardon by the governor if she would leave the country and never come back. And Linda agreed. But did we ever figure out why this, how did she pull that string? It's unclear how she was able to get that pardon, but she had so many wealthy, influential patient clients that it's very likely she had some kind of connection to somebody in the governor's office, Hmm. if not the governor himself. 
So she did agree to leave the country. She actually went to New Zealand and she delivered her state-of-the-art treatment to patients there. But her heart was still in the Pacific Northwest. So in 1920, she returned to Olala to finish building her sanatorium. And I have to say, if she tried to move back to Seattle, if she tried to move back to Minneapolis, I don't think that would have flown. Mm -hmm. But because it was this little fishing village that had so few people and so little influence, she could get away with it. Even still, given her notoriety, it's pretty ballsy that she she did that move. I mean, I'm, I'm I mean, isn't it? Didn't you say that they said that you can't come back? That was part of her. Yeah, that was part of the deal that, is that she, she would she can't never come, come back. back. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she didn't. Uh, she didn't really care. I mean, you know, when you have guts enough to kill dozens of people. Right. You know, what's, <laughs> what's a going court on? order? <laughs> right. Like, yeah. Come on. Yeah. So, uh, she kept seeing patients here in Olala. Eventually, it was determined that. At least 14 people starved to death while in her care, but many, many, many more died during treatment. It's estimated Dr. Hazard could be responsible for dozens of deaths, possibly 40 or 50 patients. But again, each time, she was the one to perform the autopsy. And so each time, she determined that it wasn't the fasting that killed them. It was something else, a previous ailment. Or in some cases, they say she may have even switched bodies so that when the bodies would go to the morgue or when they would be buried, they wouldn't look as thin as they really were. Mm -hmm. so, in so she was a real control freak. I mean, she's controlling everything. I mean, it's the perfect crime, so to speak, because she could say, hey, they can leave at any time. Right. And then when she gets to do the autopsies, hey, they died of cancer. You know, they died of this. They died of that. They didn't die of starvation. So it's like she's got... She just has to keep getting the patients to continue to buy what she's selling. Yes, exactly. And it sounds like she was able to do that. Yeah. Because of the desperation. Her it, patients right. were desperate. De and desperate people do desperate things. I mean, how many times have we heard that? So in 1935, there was a fire that burned the sanatorium to the ground. But Dr. Hazard herself was getting older, and she started to become ill. So they never rebuilt the sanatorium. It is not there anymore, although you will still find some remnants like a bathtub and things like that that are still on the property from those days. Dr. Hazard was too ill to treat any more patients except one, herself. At the age of 70, she starved herself to death. She, she took her own medicine and basically had nurses starve her, give her enemas, and, and beat her. Uh, as part of her therapies. But, you know, 70 years old, she lived past the life expectancy, so something worked. Yeah. So do you think that she'd really, truly, truly believed in her treatments? Or do you think that she just used it as a way to swindle money out of all these people? I think both, because she obviously, it was effective. I mean, it was like a Venus flytrap, right? Like, you bring the people, the trap is going to shut. It's a way to make money. She would not only get power of attorney and money, but she would steal their jewels. It was the perfect thing. And she could say, hey, they can leave at any time. There's no gates here. You know, the starving people are walking around the forest, but they could they could leave. You know, there's this sense of, like, anguish when you hear this story. Like, they can't leave. But that's the thing. They could. They could leave. So... To answer that question, yes, I think that she was totally using it to bilk these people. But I think she was drinking her own Kool-Aid because she actually, you know, took her treatment herself and ended up killing herself because of it. And again, it goes back to the lie. The lie is based in some kind of truth. Right. So I think that she 
truly did believe that modern medicine had failed her and her family with the mercury, and she was trying to help her patients. But, you know, she's basically a cult leader. Yeah. You know? And all the money, the jewelry, she took a lot of jewels uh, because a lot of these wealthy folks might not show up with cash, but they Mm -hmm. always had lots of lovely jewelry that they would bring with them. Mm -hmm. I mean, back in these days, you know, the 20s and 30s, it was all about the flash, right? Everybody had lots of jewelry. The bling. Yeah, yeah. Um, But a lot of that, most of it has never been found. And so there are treasure hunters who will actually go out to this property in Olala and look for buried treasure. Well, and you know what Drunk Steve said, too, which was really interesting, is that they it's one of those sites that people go to. I mean, to be honest, we wanted to go there. If COVID wasn't happening, we're like, yeah, let's head out to Alala. But, um, you know, people are still going there and the neighbors are like, hey, can you stop coming? Because we don't want you guys here because people, the story is so well known nationally, yeah. internationally. And um, apparently the people who bought the property didn't know the story when they bought it. Oh, man. And so now they're just like, what is happening? Why are all these people here? And then they found the story, and they're trying to put out the fire and figure out how to stop people from coming to the property. It's such a crazy story. But one thing that I did look into was the warning signs of cult leaders. And, of course, I tapped into Psychology Today, who had you know looked at Jim Jones to David Koresh, because in my mind, I think she was a cult leader. I would, I would totally put, you know, for whatever that's worth. Um, but the, what they say is that they are pathologically narcissistic. They all have or had an overabundant belief that they were special, that they and they alone had the answers to problems, and that they had to be revered. They demanded perfect loyalty from followers. They overvalued themselves and devalued those around them. They were intolerant of criticism, and above all, they did not like being questioned or challenged. Mm-hmm. And yet, in spite of these less than charming traits, they had no trouble attracting those who were willing to overlook these features. So I think that she really fits right in um, in that sweet spot of being a cult leader. And it definitely helped when she put out her book about fasting because everybody who came to her, everybody who contacted her mm-hmm. already had interest and yeah. already had a, at least a little bit of belief that this might work. Mm-hmm. So she kind of knew when they came to her that she already had an in. Yeah. It was really easy for her to convince them and kind of bring them the rest of the way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, again, back to the thing about fasting diets, they do show that if you, you know, if you have a heart attack or something, the first thing they do is you got to take out all those sweets. You got to take out all this, blah, 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 blah. So, I mean, it does work to consume less. She just just ramped that up you know, to crazy levels. I mean, I can't even imagine an adult woman weighing 50 pounds. Yeah, crazy. I mean, people were shorter back then. Let's not forget. <laughs> well, I mean, still. But still. <laughs> I mean, 50 pounds. I mean, when you look at those photos and their bones are sticking out, you can see. Yeah. I mean, it's They looked just... emaciated, skeletal. I mean, they were visually ill. Yeah. The the sadomasochism, like, I really think that with her treatments of, of beating them and giving them multiple enemas a day and I might well the crazy thing with the enemas too that I I, I didn't include in this because I didn't want to get too gross but yeah. let's do it yeah um, apparently because they were starving and they had nothing in their systems when she would do the enemas mm-hmm. she would keep doing it until something came out and oh. often it was parts of the intestine 
and then would say this is the dark matter yes the toxic matter within your um yeah so my search engine you know to your point is like crazy these days because i looked up you know what is the deal with the enemas and so basically they're useful like on a one-time basis they're supposed to help ease constipation or clear your colon out for a test or a procedure but they shouldn't be performed regularly and then it also said that incorrectly administered enemas can damage tissue in your rectum colon cause bowel perforation and if the device is not sterile infection long-term regular use of enemas can cause electrolyte imbalances and temporary side effects of enemas can include bloating and cramping and they were getting these enemas like for hours a day i mean that's what i'm talking yeah they would keep doing it until something came out and so when they first started it might just be for a few minutes because they'd get something out pretty quickly but but towards the end of the treatment the longer they were there the longer the enemas would take and the the more damage that would be done and another part of the process was beating i guess beating out yes she would beat their chest she would beat their forehead she would beat the the meat of the thighs um, to like wake up the nervous system and to loosen up any kind of bad juju. I, I don't know any bad like mojo. Yeah, bad stuff. Whatever yeah, was yeah. was toxic in the body to just kind of loosen everything up and allow it to be flushed out by all the fluids that she was having them drink. Yeah, it's just. I mean, no wonder they were out of half out of their minds, you know, with this treatment. All right, Carolyn. I think I've had enough. Uh, M- Emina? I know. I think enema that, talk for say, today. If I have to say enema one more time. <laughs> I don't think. I- so if you're curious about Dr. Hazard and, uh, you know, the, the sanatorium and her patients, go to sceneofthecrimepodcast.com because we've got some photos on there. Or you can find us uh, on Facebook or Instagram. Look for Scene of the Crime Podcast. It's, it's a little shocking. I'm going to tell you now. It's a little shocking. But if you're interested, you can, you can check it out. And you know what? We would just be so happy if you guys would give us a five-star review, you know, like us on Facebook. Um, what else can they do to help us out? Oh, let's see. They could uh, rate us on iTunes, share with your friends, um, subscribe, absolutely subscribe on, you know, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox. I mean, just like everywhere you could imagine. And, you know, we appreciate that so much. And we've had people go to our Facebook page and they're like, hey, you know, I don't know how to, for, for those of you who are just getting into this podcast world and you may not know how to download it, you know, shoot us a Facebook comment and we can walk you through it. And we just are so happy to um, have you guys as listeners and supporters. And we want to continue bringing you the Scene of the Crime podcast. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is The Scene of the Crime. Thank you.